Welcome to The Projections Podcast, a dialogue about film and psychoanalysis hosted by me, Sarah Catherine Cleaver, and me, Mary Wilde. Just like Steve Martin in Grand Canyon, we feel that all life's riddles are answered in movies, and our first series aims to introduce you to our podcast through a discussion of cinematic representations of mental illness. For the next six episodes, we'll each pick a film and use them to explore the capacity of moving image to showcase the emotional and mental functioning of six different psychiatric diagnoses. Anxiety, depression, psychosis, narcissism, borderline personality disorder, and psychopathy. Film is a means to unlock the mysteries of the human mind. Subscribe and follow our cinematic adventures into the unconscious. Hi, Mary. Hi, Sarah. (laughs) Nice to be back together recording again. So this is episode two. Yeah. And for this episode, we are going to be talking about depression. Yeah. And the two films we have selected are I, Daniel Blake. Yeah, by Ken Loach, 2016. Thank you. And The Virgin Suicides. Uh, Sofia Coppola's debut film Mm -hmm. that she directed, uh, which was released in 1999. Although before we start, maybe as our resident psychoanalyst, (laughs) you Mm. could give us a little bit of background on the psychoanalytic theory of depression. Yeah, absolutely. So um, just in a nutshell, uh, for Freud... Um, as a diagnostician, as someone who was working with his patients and he was obviously analyzing them from a psychoanalytic perspective, um, the way that he categorized illness was really in three categories. So it was uh, one branch, which which was neurosis, Mm -hmm. then psychosis, a completely distinct uh, category, and then a third sort of uh, very, let's say, loosely defined category called perversion. And since we began with anxiety, anxiety and what we call depression now, these would definitely fall within that kind of umbrella category of neurosis. Mm -hmm. So they're very different experientially and in in terms of how the individual perceives reality from psychosis. Um, So anxiety is much more connected to kind of feeling keyed up. Uh, tense, uh, with a lot of kind of nervous, uh, physiological, psychosomatic symptoms, whereas depression is what Freud would call melancholia. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a paper called Mourning, i.e. mourning with a U, i.e. grieving, Mourning and Melancholia, which um, where he really kind of dedicated his attention to looking at the state of the melancholic um, subject and how in a way they've turned their kind of sort of compared and contrasted the individual who's plagued with melancholia to the person grieving a a loss, a Mm -hmm. death. And he said that in the case of mourning, someone is, you know, understandably sad and depressed because they've lost a physical person, someone has died. There's a very natural period of grieving that person's loss. Um, and that's totally to be expected and something you, you would naturally accept as a society and that someone would go through that. With melancholia, it's a little bit different because he theorized that the melancholic individual is someone who's kind of in a state of sadness with a much more ill-defined loss. It's not a, a physical death, but it's some sort of loss that's much more abstract. Mm-hmm usually the concept of love or something undefinable that they can't quite articulate. It's much more in the realm of their unconscious that they haven't fully confronted. And what happens in the case of the melancholic is that their anger, in terms of how they relate to that loss, is totally directed at themselves. And there's a self-loathing and a kind of state of feeling kind of emotionally stunted and stuck. And really in a pattern of kind of constantly directing anger uh, and blame and shame and guilt mm-hmm. back to themselves. And they feel that it's their fault somehow. And it's all a very abstract uh, state to be in. It's very ill-defined for them. Um, and he talked about how there's a kind of regression at the oral stage for the individual who is melancholic or depressed. Um, and he, in a very interesting part of his paper, Morning Melancholia, he talked about how often um, there is a kind of component of depression where they feel like 
there's a loss out there that they want to incorporate back into themselves to kind of reassure and comfort themselves. And often this is manifested in emotional eating mm -hmm. and kind of um, how the subject will devour. It's like this devouring thing. It's very cannibalistic. He even referred to it that way. How um, it's just de this desperate state of wanting to incorporate some perceived loss out there bring it back into the self through the oral mechanism. That's interesting. And this always reminds me of also, this is not the film we're going to be discussing today, but there's a scene in um, uh, the Juliette Binache film, um, Three Colors Blue, mm -hmm. directed by Christoph Kislowski, uh, where the Juliette Binache character, she goes through the phase of mourning the death of her child and her husband, but it persists and it becomes this much more abstract depression. And there's a scene where she finds this kind of sweet, uh, that used to belong to her daughter in her handbag, in her purse. And she just has this impulse to right away start devouring it. And she, there's this, this big, crunchy kind of like sweet. And she just, and the camera just lingers on her crunching away really awkwardly and, you know, in a difficult way through this. And it's this, it's a really good representation of what Freud would describe as this unconscious desire to reincorporate some, the loss out there back into the self. And it's this, you know, psychoanalytically Freud understood that melancholia is a withdrawal from the world and kind of this immersion into this feeling of sadness. This has to do with isolation, self-isolation, kind of existing in this perpetual bubble of, uh, you know, kind of being almost like drowning in mm -hmm. that state, you know? Um, so a lot you know, a lot of the representations of, of sadness that we have seen, like Lars von Trier's film Melancholia, they do represent that very well. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. The way she moves as if everything's heavy. Yeah. As if the air is heavy. Yeah. It's incredible. And her sleepiness. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, like fatigue and kind of almost being like, uh, like the subject is somehow almost like contained or embalmed or something mm -hmm. in that state. There's, it's sort of like they're very much almost imprisoned in that state. And it's a very, very difficult, it's a very experientially, it's very different from anxiety. But um, nonetheless, it's still very much within that kind of subcategory of neurosis. Mm -hmm. Because it's not the same as psychosis, where we will be discussing psychosis yeah. too. Psychosis is a totally warped perception of reality. Mm -hmm. so, or a personality disorder or, where you're turning your anger out towards others. Exactly. Towards yourself, which we'll also be talking about. Um, yeah. I remember reading Morning in Melancholia because I came yeah. to your class on Lars von Trier. Yeah. And I remember, yeah. I might be wrong, so correct yeah. me, but was there like a paragraph about truth or the perception of the truth in term for the depressive. Just I remember, You might be right. I remember thinking about it because in yeah. Melancholia yeah. Justine is privy to a truth that, that no one else is privy uh, yes. to. Yes. And there is that experience you in your like personal experience of depression. You know full well that you're worthless and mm. disgusting and a terrible person and no one will believe you. Mm. Which I remember just, you know, as yes. being I, I do now know what you're referring to, and you are correct, because Freud said that, and a lot of, po you know, sort of later colleagues of his and people who took up his theory also kind of um, developed this special focus that he put on depressives as being kind of in this paradoxical position of, um, you know, obviously suffering very much, but at the same time, uh, there's this kind of uh, authenticity mm -hmm. about the disorder where um, there's no longer the maybe because of maybe we can we can presuppose it could be because of chemical imbalances or because of the you know the, the physical effects of depression but there's this refusal to persist with the kind of in a way the social facade of what's expected of us and the kind of what civilization um, presents to us as standards of how we have to behave and certain standards of what we have to look like and what we have to do and what achievements we have to report back, etc., etc. With the depressive, it's like this resistance mm -hmm. against that because maybe because they're just not capable because they are overwhelmed with that feeling of sadness. And so there is that kind of paradox of suffering, but also 
um, through the process of suffering, um, no longer willing or being able to put on a social mask. Mm -hmm. And a lot of things then being presented as just the truth. The suffering is the truth. This this kind of, um, I guess, refusal to play along mm -hmm. with the kind of pantomime that everything's fine, everything's hunky-dory, I'm on top of it all. And then the suffering, especially in depression, it's really pronounced. It's like um, the bare bones of reality. And it's like, um, you know, unapologetically real. Yeah. You know, it's really, it's really real and it's authentic. And that's really beautifully presented in Melancholia. It is really well presented in Melancholia. In truth. Yeah. If you haven't seen Melancholia, watch Melancholia. Again, yeah. we have to make up another list of depression films yeah. <laughs> because we were only able to talk about two. Yeah. But it is this paradoxical thing of someone who's suffering and very ashamed and yeah. feeling very inferior, but at the same time very superior because they're yeah. in touch with, you know, they feel they're in touch with a certain authenticity of absolutely. themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And their symptom communicates a reality mm -hmm. that is kind of like unfiltered, you know. Uh, and Freud had a lot of respect for that. Because Freud was very critical of the kind of phony, sometimes phony presentations of of civilization. Mm -hmm. uh, he he didn't have a lot of time for people who kind of like play along and you know enter into this script willingly of how they're supposed to act. He hated hypocrisy, and so he had a lot of respect for his patients who came to him and said, "My life is a mess." And I'm suffering, mm -hmm. you know, and that their symptom kind of like, um, in a sense, gave them a license to tell the truth and break away from the expectations of society. And yeah. it's interesting because both the films we've looked at contain sort of moments where people are unable to see the truth about each other. Yeah. You know, the Virgin Suicides. What I like about Sophia Coppola is because, I mean, people accuse her of being a stylistic <laughs> director and you know all style and no substance mm. but the thing about Sophia Coppola is because her characters don't say much she has to communicate it yeah. through what they're wearing yeah. the environments that they're in well that amazing no one else has it Sophia Coppola haze mm. that the, the air is visible and yeah. you have it in the Virgin Suicides, and you have it in the again in the Beguiles. Yeah, I, and I in the agree. Beguiles, it's representative of repression and sexual yeah. tension, and in the Virgin Suicides, it's representative of of depression. Yeah, that you can actually see the air; it's so steamy. Yeah, and so close. Yeah, which I think is amazing. Yeah, yeah, and it's really um, it's a it's a testament to her talent as a filmmaker that she can represent that on film. And I agree. I think that. Um, I don't think that she over relies on style. I think that um, she is obviously a, a cinephile mm -hmm. and she is maybe partial to certain aesthetics, but I don't think that in any way uh, devalues her work. If anything, I think actually she, she, she uses those abilities uh, to communicate really interesting ideas. She does, definitely. I agree. Because I remember when you chose it, I was, this is your choice, Virgin Suicide. Yeah. I remember one, wondering how I could read the film in terms of depression because I'd always mm. read the film in terms of the the mystery of womanhood mm. and that slightly enforced mystery of womanhood. Oh, we can't understand them, so we're not going to try. <laughs> we're just going to make up this, yeah. this idea. You know, these, men, these boys watching these girls and imagining what their lives are like, but yeah. you know, never really finding out. And actually, of course, that is a really nice metaphor for depression. Who is it that said depression is comparing your insides to someone's outsides? Yeah, oh yeah, I, I've heard that quote before as well. I don't know who said it, but yeah, that's Whoever such a good... credit to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it is interesting because what, what I found really um, surprising to discover is that the film is based on the 1993 best-selling debut novel of the same name by um, the American author Jeffrey Eugenides. And so it's telling the lives of sort of five teenage sisters in a middle-class suburb near the outskirts of Detroit during the 1970s. And so we have the situation where the youngest sister makes, uh, is a Cecilia, she makes mm -hmm. an initial suicide attempt 
and following that her sisters are put under close scrutiny by their parents eventually being confined to their home which leads to their increasingly depressive and isolated behavior and as you said the, like the book itself the film is told from the perspective of a group of adolescent boys who are kind of fascinated with the girls who happen to be their neighbors now Right away, the fact that it's Detroit during the 1970s made me think how serendipitous because um, what the next one we're going to be talking about, I, Daniel Blake, um, where we have characters who are suffering very deeply mm-hmm. uh, in a depressive and sort of very austere economic model. Um, th- there is a link here with, with the virgin suicides because... Detroit was a city that was economically booming because of the automobile industry. And it was during the 70s when um, the neoliberal economic agenda took hold in America. And a lot of these um, sort of domestic industries were uh, deliberately sort of shut down. Um, And so a lot of people who, who were making their livelihood within these kind of fields of work Uh, were suffering terribly, um, economically and fiscally. So it is kind of interesting to... And this is not something that Sofia Coppola really kind of emphasizes Mm -hmm. in the film. It's not a a main factor in the narrative of this film, in The Virgin Suicides. But I do find it interesting that um, Detroit is such a fascinating symbol of this kind of like faded economic glory this once extremely prosperous city um, where people went to make a lot of money and it was booming and it produced great music and it's culturally dynamic. Suddenly, it's it's going very rapidly uh, changing and transforming fr- from that kind of, uh, you know, wonderful potential that it manifested to really a decline. And it is great, actually. It makes it very it, much more subtle film in my eyes that Coppola chose this book and where it was set and how subtle that detail is. It's just a little detail in the background. And in fact, I rewatched the film last night and the boys who kind of narrate the film just mention it at the beginning mm-hmm. how, you know, it was it was the 70s and how Detroit was changing. They just It just sort of is hinted at and it's never spoken of again. And yet it's meaningful mm. because we do see this kind of, uh, you know, very sad situation of a group of young, young girls, teenagers, um, who, sh- you know, ought to be living it up and ought to have this great potential. And uh, they're cut down, you know, uh, at the moment that they're supposed to really flourish and during the moment of their flourishing, actually. So it is a kind of interesting parallel, and it brings, you know, for me, I think it's really serendipitous that, that uh, you chose I, Daniel Blake, because as soon as I saw that little factor, I thought, wow, you know, that's going to be a really interesting discussion. No, it's not serendipitous, it's some form of synchronicity. <laughs> I would never have thought those two films were connected in any way. You're right. But actually, I think it's always going to happen this way. I think we both so. choose a film at random and yeah. they both work. And they're so, they're so different they in their different. genres and mm-hmm. the things that they look at, and yet there are some connections. Um, I just want to say quickly, it, apropos of nothing, it's just because it, you mentioned uh, Coppola's wonderful ability at capturing mood and atmosphere. There's this scene in The Virgin Suicides when they're all getting ready to go to their homecoming Mm -hmm. dance and their mother, played by Kathleen Turner, just, you know, maybe some reference to Carrie's mother, you know. Oh, it must be. Brian De Palma's woman. There's some very big similarities in the two films. Um, And she insists on uh, sort of designing and creating all their dresses so they go to a fabric store and when the girls finally emerge in all their uh, outfits it's it's all made from the same pattern mm. it's slightly different cuts but they all pretty much look the same and it's almost very cultish like they look like women from a cult who have been allowed out for a night and um, in a way uh, it is interesting you know um Obviously, there's a lot of religious issues. Uh, the mother doesn't approve of their daughters, you know, sort of going through their adolescence and becoming mm-hmm. interested in boys. Yeah. Having a sexuality. She's very much in denial of that. 
Um, so it just made me, it was just that moment, very kind of sort of uh, black comedy, you know, of like, they're allowed to go to the dance, but they look like they're in a cult, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but yeah, so I think the reason why I really wanted to choose this film for our discussion on depression is because it's sort of, it's very, in a way, difficult to cinematically represent depression without being too on the nose and kind of too, like, you know? Definitely, and that is a problem that I have with a lot of depression yeah. films, and that's why it took me so many weeks to choose a film. Yeah. Because there is, I don't know if this is something I feel as a form of depressive or something that everyone feels or that's universal, but there is something very distasteful about describing depression. Yeah. It takes a very skillful person to do it without sounding ridiculous. Yeah. Because it is a, you know, it is a mental, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. not, it's not how life really is. Yeah. You are, you know, however much you feel that you have access to this truth and you do have access to certain truths, it's not really, you know, you're not really, how you're feeling is not really how things are. Sure. So it's impossible to talk about it without sounding crazy. And that's why it was important to choose films that more were more allegories of depression yeah, than I actual agree. depression. I don't think I, Daniel Blake, was ever supposed to be a film about depression. No, no. And I hadn't seen it before I chose it. But I just saw that trailer bit, which we'll talk about later. Mm. But the I just saw a person struggling to verbalise them, themselves. Exactly. And... That's something that is so good about Sofia Coppola. She doesn't attempt to have no. anyone verbalize anything. Exactly. It's all just a very visual representation yeah. of it. Exactly. It's all kind of. It's all very symbolic. And yeah, you're right. And it's and and then it, right away it you know it, it doesn't run the risk of being patronizing. Exactly. And it's even so, yeah. and this, it's the same with melancholia. You know, yeah. the <laughs> depression is you know it's not. Justine's depression because all of Justine's depressive moments are played for comedy more than anything else mm -hmm. you know that bit where she puts the meatloaf back on the plate and says, oh, it yeah. tastes like ashes yeah yeah <laughs> it's you know it's not that's not the bit that's not what is about depression no what is about depression is the whole rest of the film yeah so that's I don't know but he's you know <laughs> He's just a funny guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, that is definitely... I was really happy with you choosing it because... Yeah, because you, I think you're absolutely right. It does capture so visually that this sort of... Um, more of a kind of uh, feeling or something very difficult to articulate with words. It's not kind of running through a checklist of symptoms. Mm -hmm. It's much more about capturing visually... Um, this kind of um, very, very real feeling um, that is associated with the isolation, um, particularly in divergent suicides, that a depressive might feel. Um, how, you know, following a tragic event, uh, and yes, okay, we do see, obviously, after Cecilia, you know, following her sec, you know, following her first attempt at committing suicide she's then successful and she does kill herself mm -hmm. in a very in a very surreal way yeah. I mean she falls out of the window and lands on the, on the, the fence the fence yeah yeah and, and the way that her body is just kind of almost like levitating yeah it is it's, it's that it must be a deliberate choice of Sophia Coppola's it was very very ghostly and strange and there's very no blood gothic. there's yeah, no there's screaming no. it's just very silent yeah, like wayfish, yeah. witchy kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. There's something really. It's not. It's almost like it's not ever intended to be taken as a real, as yeah. a reflection of reality. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. A reflection of what all of those girls see when they go outside. Yeah, you know, because in the way that the brain protects itself from trauma. Yeah, that's kind of how it is. Yeah, you're right. That's such a good way of putting it. It's sort of almost detached from reality. Exactly, because you know they're just having a party in the basement. All yeah. those kids go outside and see this thing, and yeah. they, you know, they don't. I think because they don't really take in what they're seeing, it looks like that to them. Yeah, it looks like she's levitating. And that's in a way lending credence to Freud's theory that melancholia is the irrational underbelly of mourning because mm -hmm. mourning is a very realistic, understandable, rational response to a physical death whereas the way that Coppola represents you know the youngest sister's death which is kind of in a way that sort of almost even more tragic in a way she's only 13 years old she's just a child 
and um, and she's committed suicide. Um, but the representation of her death is, as you say, then in this very kind of uh, surreal way, and that then brings us to the state of much, actually, much more about depression, and um, and the way that after that, following that, they're always, it's almost like they're 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 like um, conjoined twin, you know, con mm. conjoined physically or something. Conjoin quadruplet, quadruplets. That's a very hard word to say, but <laughs> they're always together. And Sophia's camera is always kind of framing them as almost being kind of like I don't know, like um, glued together. They're in the room and they're sort of lackadaisically moving together, very in sync, very synchronized. Um, yeah, and it's 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 like they take on this. Um, collective um, sort of response mm. um, and then it becomes much more I mean Cecilia is never really spoken of again and then it becomes much more about which almost makes me think are we supposed to be somehow invited to interpret the film as almost like Cecilia never really happened that I don't know this is too maybe is is I get it. I get it as a theory. You know? Definitely. Because it's almost like she, you know, it's so surreal. Like, they then go to the homecoming dance. Mm -hmm. And it's as if it's as if there was never a fifth daughter or something. And yes, we see, you know, some references here and there. But it's almost like there's something there that makes me think that um, that was maybe given as a, a rational excuse for how they feel. But that's that never happened, and in so fact, Cecilia is just depression, yeah, which is apparently contagious in that house. Yeah, because then we do see her some kind of like phantom, like mm. Cecilia appearing here and there. Yeah, you and do. she's like in the tree. She she goes to one of the boys' rooms and watches them sleep. The dad thinks she's seen her in the in a room, you know, from where she jumped, mm -hmm. and then. She becomes kind of like an excuse for the parents to further, like, teenage-proof the house. So they remove the fence, and there's a, you know, then they're homeschooled. They're not allowed to go back to school. Um, they're, like, it's, it's, it becomes extremely oppressive. And then, then we zero in on something else, something that almost uh, goes beyond the excuse of the death of, of, a, of a younger sister. There's something much more disturbing going on. That's, yeah, you're completely right. That's you know? a really good way of looking at it. I mean, it's just one... Uh, you yeah, know, obviously potentially, it's just one interpretation. Yeah, but it just made me think, like, um, just because <laughs> there's this, um, again, almost, very, almost verging on comical scene where Kathleen Turner's character, uh, the mother, she makes Lux, um, burn all her rock records. Yeah. And it, like, fills the house with toxic yeah. smoke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like, they're just trying to get rid of, you know, anything that could potentially um, sort of encourage the girls in a negative way. Well, it's interesting. You said cult, which totally makes sense because mm. they are actually in their own private suicide cult. It yeah. emerges by the end. But um, there's also something very, like, a quarantine about them, mm. you know. And so they all have to wear those little <laughs> white robes because they're all in these little hospital gowns. Yeah. And it kind of makes you think about the fear of... There's a fear around depression that it's, it's genetic, mm. that it's, you know, oh in your blood and that it's, <laughs> you can't escape it. You know, you have yeah. all of these, you know, family members who at a different time have been institutionalised or, yeah. you know, and... It's, uh, this, I don't know, there's something about that, the hereditary or catching nature of depression. Yeah. So they have to be isolated. Yeah, they have to burn the disease with fire <laughs> to make it go away. Yeah. Yeah, and the mm. fact that rock music was kind of, like, singled out. Because rock music is, you know, people expressing exactly. their unpalatable feelings. Yeah, know? they're telling their truth. Yeah. Sometimes ugly truth. Mm. Um, and it's quite, it can be quite dark. Yeah. And um, the parents were uh, very hell-bent on making sure that, you know, th they were going to fill the house with their authority over the girls. And actually, also reason and logic, because the mom was this... The mom seemed to be the more re religious one, and she's always wearing a cross. 
and she sits in between like the girls and their male friends mm-hmm. at, you know in the in the living room etc cetera, etc cetera. she's she's the kind of puritanical repressed one but then the dad he's a math teacher at their local high school at their at the, at the, at the girls high school and whenever we see him he's either talking about mathematical theory mm-hmm. or like the aerodynamics or the aerodynamics yeah. you know there's all, all filled with like kind of historical and like scientific facts and all these very sort of logical um let's say perspectives on the world and you know sort of problem solving goal oriented logical you know square stuff and then in a way the the boys across the street these adolescent boys who are fascinated with the girls they're a bit like the dad because they're trying to solve the mystery of these fu- mm-hmm. these girls and they're all they're you know they pinch uh diaries and like bits and pieces from the girl's house and they try and it's like a big puzzle piece it's like really messy puzzle that they have to bring back together and try and explain what went wrong? Like, what were the sequence of events that led to these girls doing that? Mm-hmm. All of them killing themselves. And so in a way, they're kind of... They just made me think so much. They're sort of adopting the father's approach. Very logical, you know, but it's sort of at odds with what these girls represent. They're sort of almost, like, mythological. They are, and it's definitely a nod <laughs> towards the... I mean... It's a film that could be accused of glamorizing depression, mm. but it's much more about the that they wouldn't be interested in them if they weren't depressed, yeah. you know, if they weren't troubled, if they weren't damaged. Yeah. It's it's much more about the perception of that as being glamorous or being yeah. mysterious. Yeah, that I, I think Sofia Coppola is talking about, yeah. and it does lend credence to that slight superiority, that authenticity of depression. Yeah, if, if you know people. Really want to come and fix you, and they yeah. really want to find out, and they really want to talk to you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because then we see Lux, even when she's quarantined, she still hooks up with boys yeah, on the roof. She's you know? so I've, not, I've never understood that bit of that. Bit of, <laughs> like so magnetic is her sexuality <laughs> that with no communication, men come to her roof. It's incredible, and again. <sighs> It's not real. It can't be real. No, exactly. It's it's real. That's really verging on the yeah. surreal. And I love that Sofia Coppola sort of weaves that in. Mm-hmm. And the fact that her name is Lux. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the, the Latin for light. And there's it's this like this light and just peeking out of this dark tower where there's so much uh, despair mm-hmm. and so much depression. And yet still... Um, you know, I think what the disease symbolizes and then becomes so captivating and, and interesting is that is the, um, the authenticity, you know, the, the, the refusal to play along. And high school is so much about, you know, so much of what high school movies touch on is this time in people's lives when they're trained to accept their role in society and play along mm-hmm. and people form cliques and then you have stereotypes and you navigate you know wh- where you belong and you play your role and you know your place and then these girls even in the way that uh, the Kirsten Dunst character relates to the Josh Hartnett you know Trip Fontaine oh Trip Fontaine <laughs> so if if Cecilia is the disease yeah and the father is the you know depression doesn't exist you just need a good diet and yeah, exercise yeah. <laughs> And if the mother is depression doesn't this, you just need a better relationship with God. Yeah. And if Lux is the inner world of the depressive that is, you know, it has this fantasy of transcendence and light, is Trip Fontaine <laughs> the antidepressant that makes you nauseous and manic? <laughs> yeah. And then leaves you. And then leaves you. Leaves you when it stops working in six months and you need an up- upgrade. I love that. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Because he's packaged as this kind of like, you know, everyone. He's a miracle. He's the happy yeah. pill he of is. that school. Yeah. Which which is interesting. Yeah, I love the way you just put that. I love that. That's so good. That's so good. Because yeah, he 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 sort of lures her into this possibility of escape, mm-hmm. and then he just dumps her once she's no longer mysterious. Yeah. To him. He's conquered yeah. that field literally. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, and he's out. Yeah. And and it's interesting the way that he's represented in the film because because years later I think we see him being interviewed maybe for a documentary. And or he's something. in like a he's in like a rehab. Facility. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is interesting. Which he's, is so interesting. Actually, the fact that he penetrates her on the football field does put him in that role of the of the patriarchal <laughs> therapist who just wants to get inside you. And then, oh, wow. You know, and then that's it, he's fixed you. <laughs> he's a bit like, um, is, who, who's the guy who played, oh gosh, I'm going to forget his name, but in, in Antichrist... The husband. Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe. Yes. He's a bit like the Willem he Dafoe, Dafoe character. character. He's like the, you know, I'm going to fix you, we're going to get you out, in, in, on the field, you know, literally. And, yeah. that's and then when happens. she does appear to be fixed, he's almost a little bit disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh no, we've still got work it's to so do. It's so true, it's a very similar yeah. pattern. I love that. Um, yeah, I mean, that his entry is the best entrance in, one of the top ten entrances <laughs> in film. Uh, what is it? Hearts Magic Man. Yeah. And, yeah. Trip and Fontaine. like swinging his leather jacket over his shoulder. And his long hair. Yeah. And, and like, like the way he goes like that yeah. and tucks it behind his ear. It's just great. Oh, that soundtrack amazing. is great too. Yeah, it's a very good soundtrack. Air's soundtrack is fantastic. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. And again, they use it when they have no ability to verbally communicate. Yeah. They, you know, they play a song to each other yeah. over the phone. Yeah. It's really nice. Oh, it's lovely. Isn't there, is there something in the fact that um, the theme of the party they go to at the end is asphyxiation? Oh, yeah. It's just, again, it's like that's another really, really surreal thing. Yeah. Because it doesn't make any sense. No. They say that it's because of some kind of like pollution or stench or something like that. And the theme is asphyxiation. But none of those people are actually wearing their gas masks. Yeah. So it's, it's so not going to help. And it's all this green filter. Yes. And like sort of this very post-apocalyptic setting mm -hmm. almost. Yeah, it's so true. And it kind of, for me, hones in again on this factor, you know, this sort of device at work in the film of, in a sense, portraying the depressive um, reality as very much kind of oppression as, as well as, you know, feeling depressed, feeling like out of breath, mm -hmm. you know, um, kind of choking in this environment and uh, and being very much submerged in that environment, not being able to get out. And that's why it's so great in that whole montage towards the end of the film where the neighbors call, you know, call the girls and just play music and they exchange musical sort of um, sequences with each other. And, and they also read the same travel magazines mm -hmm. and they fantasize that they're out tra discovering the world together, but they can't because it's like these girls are in prison. They're like in a maximum security facility, which is the disease. Mm -hmm. You know, they can't get out. But it's also a symptom of depression that your inner life gets much, much more involved. Yeah. That you do fantasize There's a fa Yeah, a absolutely. More. You know, but yeah. it's much more so than when you're well. Yeah, the imagination is just really um, almost kind of like, and because the other senses are so sort of dulled down, this, the imagination takes on the power of all the senses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's I think we've covered a lot on I that. I think we've covered actually. a lot. Yeah. Do you want to move on to Daniel Blake? Yeah, let's. Okay. So, again, important to stress, I'm pretty sure Ken Loach never intended to make a depression film. Yeah. But we are going to smush it into an allegory anyway. Yeah. Because it, it, works. Really, it really works. But it is, it's important to say, a very, very important and true story about the benefits system yeah. and the impossibility and humiliation of it. Mm -hmm. So it was, I really liked it. It was good. I watched it for the first time last night and it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's an extraordinary film. Definitely, you know, dedicated to exposing the inhumane um, reality of the benefit system and the austerity paradigm um, of economics, which believes that uh, in times of fiscal difficulty, uh, the best thing to do as a society is that we all must um, have even less money invested in society mm -hmm, which is completely illogical it is illogical and it doesn't work austerity has been shown by economists all over the world it's been proven as not working because in the last over seven years now that we've had austerity in the united kingdom the deficit you know the, the debt that existed 
not only has it not gone down, but it's more than doubled. So we know it doesn't work. And all it does is to demoralize citizens, humiliate them. Which I think is the aim. I think so too. I agree. I think it's the ideological aim of austerity. It is the ideological aim of the Conservative Party. I agree. Mm -hmm. I agree. Because when when the an electorate and citizens of a country are um, made to feel... Uh, depressed in themselves when they are um, sort of stripped of their fiscal autonomy and when there's not that much work available, when they haven't had a, a, a pay rise in many years, when everything around them is being privatized and industries are being sort of, you know, plucked away, they're less threatening to to the you know serving government as a res, as a resistance as a form of resistance, and they are probably much more involved in personal crises as a result of these policies. So the the sitting government doesn't have to fear people who are wrapped up in a personal crisis because they they don't serve as a threat anymore. But it's great because. I agree that um, Ken Loach, who has a history of making very politicized films, mm -hmm. but I think in this one, it's really fascinating to see how it really hones in on the individual reality of the person facing systems that prevent them from accessing benefits, uh, systems that make them go to work even though they're not fit for work. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. It is. And I think um, just going from the first scene, yeah. which is his, um, what does he call it? There's a, there's a, what do they call it? There's a word for it. He's having some form of interview that oh, yeah. determines his suitability for sure. work. And just that, what exactly what you were saying about Freud defining the difference between mourning and melancholia, mm. that she is asking him these questions that he can answer but they're not re they're not related to his problem and he's saying mm -hmm. no it's it's my heart the problem's in he's literally saying the problem's inside me yeah just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there which exactly. I, is definitely something that depressives have to oh, continue yeah. to say and talk about um so yeah it's definitely mm -hmm. about the communication difficulties mm -hmm. associated with depression but there's so many there's so much language throughout the film that i thought was such a good symbol for it. the bit where she says where he meets the, the girl you know she's happy she's been late so she can't get so she's been she just can't get her benefits That's and she's right. been put on some kind of list where she can't have them for three oh, weeks. Yeah. And she has and a child. She has two children. Yeah, that's right. She has two and children. Oh, she yeah. says to him, I've got, they're starting school tomorrow and I've got £12 in my purse. And it's that idea of your resources are never fully stocked. They're yeah. always depleted. You're always right at the end, your wits mm -hmm. end and your the end of your energy, yeah. the end of your ability to do anything. She yeah. says it quite a lot. She says... You know, she keeps. She says. I sometimes she says. Like, am I? In a, he, I think he says. Am I in a time war? Mm. She says. You know. I just feel. I just feel like I'm. What does she say? It's shutting down or something like yeah. that. People say stuff all the time. They're they're at the end. They're at they're the overwhelmed. Yeah, they're overwhelmed. They're completely overwhelmed, and they're also they just have. There's a bit there where she says that she has been moved from London to Newcastle. Oh, yeah. Because she can get a council flat in Newcastle yeah. after how many years in a homeless shelter with those two kids. And there's that there's that idea of not being able to... It, you know, it happens to where people can't hack it in London because oh, yeah. they're depressed and they have to move away. Yeah. So there's just so much reoccurring language. Yeah, there's, there's this saying... And again, I can't remember who this quote is by, but there's that quote about, if you're sick of London, you're sick of life. Mm -hmm. And the fact that this young woman with two kids has been forcibly, you know, circumstances have made it that she's had to move away from her home. And it's because yeah. when they say at some point, she says at some point that they had to move out of the flat they were in because there was a damp and mold problem and her oh, kid yeah. was getting sick. Yeah. So literally sick. Yeah. Yeah. Which a lot of us are. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, there's, and then as well when you said the thing about consuming or eating, mm. there is that awful, awful moment oh, where they're God. in a food bank oh, and she's walking around giving this food and just, and you know, all through the film you see her make dinner for the kids, you might see her make dinner for him and she says, I've eaten already, I'm going to have this apple. Yeah. She's not eating. She's not eating. And she just, and she takes a lid off a can of beans and just stuffs a handful in her mouth and then cries oh. and cries and it's so shameful and so shocking. Yeah. She hasn't had anything to eat, but she just can't help herself because she's so hungry. Yeah, yeah, and melancholia being so much about 
you know, the, the, this desperate kind of ravenous desire to incorporate the lost object back into the subject. Mm -hmm. And that scene, first of all, when I saw that scene, I didn't think I was going to be emotional watching that film. But when that food bank scene happened, it was so, so upsetting that I just was crying rivers of tears. I was so heartened by that moment. A lot of people say, I mean, now we have more food banks than ever emerging in this country. And a lot of people are ashamed to rely on food banks because there's something very primal about a person and adulthood and the ability of having the means to feed yourself. And when you know, you're stripped of that ability, it's humiliating, mm -hmm. especially if you are the mother of children. And in a way, um, I think that there's a lot to say about, you know, kind of comparing and contrasting and really kind of holding these two things in parallel, the austerity model and what it's doing psychologically, like the psychological damage it's doing to people, um, and depression mm -hmm. and the state of living inside that reality because it's very sad. And within that, I mean, there's a very powerful message in, in the film because, of course, um, Daniel Blake, um, he helps, um, is it Katie? Her name think, is Katie. I think yeah. It's so he is going through his own problems, living, you know, going through this Kafka esque, uh, you know, mind crushing, soul crushing experience of having to deal with the Department of Work and Pensions and what it takes for him to have access to his benefits and how he is constantly having to prove his condition um, and answer these bizarre questions, these really patronizing questions in this, frankly, in a system where all the people who are working and interviewing him, they are in a way, it's what Hannah Arendt described as the banality of evil when she was describing what happened during the Holocaust and the Second World War, how she said, um, as a Jewish philosopher, herself kind of reflecting on what was going on, you know, during the Second World War, she said, it couldn't have just taken some charismatic, maniacal, psychotic leader to make all of those things happen. What had to happen was that there are all these people within a system who were just doing their job. Mm -hmm. And they were, you know, they might have been the guy who just signed the release for people going, boarding a train, the train that goes to the camps. They weren't the people executing people in the camps, but they were just doing the administrative aspect that facilitated the genocide to take place. So they might have not felt like a monster because they weren't physically holding a gun to anybody's head, but they played their part. Mm -hmm. And when when the Nuremberg trials happened, and a lot of those administrators and managers were being tried, they said, "I'm not a monster. I was just doing my job." And so we can say we can look at Daniel Blake and and look at all the players within that system that oppress other people. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just doing their job in a very toxic system. and But the end result is dehumanization, demoralization, you know, stripping people of their dignity. And a lot of people who end up in those situations, they have a lot of self-loathing. They do. And there is an interesting thing about that is that it's a very, um, so it's a very realist film. I think, yeah. I think I'm much... Uh, tends to cast non-actors <laughs> yeah. from the place that he's making a film about. That's right. Um, which, irritatingly, you could really tell in case of some of the kids. I felt like they yeah. were really bad acting, but they're just kids. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, even yeah. in such a realist film, yeah. there is still this mythical character of this sort of non-realist character of the decision maker right who keeps being referred to all the time which is you know i suppose the evil is the evil yeah the, the banal evil, evil. Overlord, yeah you know? yeah yeah but it's that he doesn't even you know that those that evil dictator doesn't even have to exist mm. that it could just it doesn't have to be a person it, yeah it could just be a concept yeah. that everyone serves i don't know why that's important that's, but anyway but i think it's true because you know so much of what Freud said about um, the, the melancholic symptoms being a form of resistance 
against uh, aspects of civilization that are demeaning. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, it ta the depressive is really a courageous person because they're saying no. Yes, and that is the that is definitely the stage that he goes yeah. to. You know? Yeah. Where he makes this, this incredible statement outside the the JSA building. Yeah. And whereas Katie goes yeah. more the compartmentalization route sure. of dehumanizing herself. Yeah. You know, when he finds her in the brothel, she says, yeah. this is separate. Yeah, she, says, she has the words. She says, "This is cut off. This is separate." Yeah, and then when he tries she to, rationalizes. Yeah, it. she rationalizes. It and yeah, she has chosen to survive is to cut herself off from her. Yeah, well, her needs and her humanity to yeah. a certain extent. That's yeah, what she wants to be doing. Yeah, and um, she also says, "It." I wrote it down because it was just so painful yeah. and pointed. She says, "Don't show me any more love. It's going to break oh, me down." Yeah. Oh my god, that's so upsetting. But I have to say, when she said, it's like, it looks like it's morning when he goes in. And yeah. she says, I put £300 in my pocket. I was like, what? It's a lot of money. It must be very hard to say no to if you're yeah. in a position like that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and it's totally understandable why people do make those choices. She must have made double that money because you give half of it away. At yeah. Least, you know, yeah. to whoever owns yeah. the house that you're working in. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so now in this kind of, um, state of um, perpetual sadness and kind of perceiving this world that surrounds you that's constantly trying to break you. You're already down, mm -hmm. and you're you're you know you're already you know barely surviving. Um, yes, I can see how in that kind of world, altruism and genuine love with no strings attached, just the willingness to help. Is really, it sort of destabilizes the, your perception of, of the world. Mm -hmm. Your whole outlook cannot even function when you have someone, like a true friend, who's there and they want to be there for you. It's a very sad film, but I think it's so important for everyone to see I, Daniel Blake, because it's, this is it. I mean, when it came out, I remember there was some, aspects of the right-wing sort of British press who were saying that Ken Loach was exaggerating yes. and he was making things up and that this is not what Britain is today and that he's just sensationalizing one or two incidents that might have happened. The truth is that, um, you know, Ken Loach has no... He's, he's not motivated to do that. He's not a sensationalistic director. Uh, he is a very, I've heard him several times in interviews, he's actually a very, um, for someone, you know, who's making a film like this, who's obviously very passionate about these types of realities that people face, the way that he speaks and how he comes across, he's actually very um, mild-mannered. And he, he comes in with facts. Mm -hmm. He is, a very, he speaks in a very measured way. He's very calm. He doesn't get aggressive, and you wouldn't, you couldn't blame him if he did. But he's a very, uh, you know, sort of cerebral guy. He was moved by a lot of things that he read about how common this kind of thing is, how so many people do face dehumanizing situations, and they get caught in this purgatorial state of maybe being disabled or not fit to work being denied benefits, having to prove mm -hmm. constantly the sort of uh, despairing details of their reality um, and always, you know, constantly being trapped in that cycle of abject poverty. I mean, this is it. I mean, th this for me is a very good uh, way, you know, this type of language and these signifiers are helpful for us to also understand depression because... So much of depression is also about cyclical patterns. Oh yeah, definitely. The recovery doesn't happen every time. Yeah, you know you have to often go up and down a lot yeah. before you're better. Yeah, you know, and maybe you, some people are never better, but yeah. some people are. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that you said that because that is the reason why I wanted to say this is a film about this. You know, it's not just a film about depression; it's a film about this because mm. I'm not. You know, you can't even. I sort of don't even want to credit those right-wing news stories with a response no. because, you know, they lie about everything. They do. And it's a 
it's a disgusting thing to do about this film to deny that it's true. It's, yeah, it's gaslighting. Yeah, it is. It is gaslighting. It's gaslighting. It's telling people that their reality is not happening and that they're lying. Mm-hmm. And it's a really cruel thing to do to people who are already suffering. Just today, a paper that I don't want to name because they don't even deserve to be named, but they're, they're quite vile. Uh, they reported about the fact that the UK uh, is hooked on happy pills. Apparently, there's this report that's come out that's shown that the use of antidepressants in this country has increased. And this is kind of um, seems to be a following the trend of economic austerity. Mm -hmm. The more there's austerity, the more people worry about their future, which makes sense. And but that's not the line of critical thinking that this paper has chosen to take. Instead, they're... We're all hedonists. We're all hedonists. Yeah. You know, to refer to antidepressants as happy pills is so disgraceful. Yeah, I know. You know, not even taking the time to look at why is it that people are more depressed now than they ever have? And why is it that the UK is number four uh, amongst countries that, you know, administer antidepressants? Um so it's just very unhelpful, but I think it is shining a light on the reality that people experience, and hopefully it'll just open up a dialogue. But it is interesting about the yeah. idea of people being described antidepressants, because yeah. you, there is um, a similarity in that you know uh, benefit system and the yeah. sort of NHS system, where you have to go to the doctor, you have to fill in a weird survey about yeah. your symptoms. Which is, which I don't know what it's for, and it's it's really strange, and you have to answer these like vaguely humiliating questions mm-hmm. in order to get your pills, because you're not going to get any therapy unless you want to be on a waiting list right. for a really long time, and if you do get therapy, you're going to get six weeks of CBT. Wow. And that's it. So there is there you know there is that sort of ticking boxes, having some proof, yeah, and then having a system that we prescribe for you, not yeah. a system that works for you, yeah. So there are there are similarities. There are similarities, yeah, and I think it is interesting that even the, even the language that Freud talks about when he describes melancholia and he says, in mourning, the 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 reality of the subject uh, is diminished. Because the loved one has died. Mm-hmm. But in melancholia, it's the ego itself that is impoverished. And he uses the word impoverished specifically because that richness of the quality of life is gone. Mm-hmm. The ego becomes this kind of stale place, uh, very numb and much more poor. And what we see, you know, certainly a film like Daniel Blake highlights is that austerity and the systematic impoverishing of society and pitting the NHS against the individual uh, who comes and complains about mental illness. Uh, These are all factors that people have to be aware of and the role that poverty plays in all of these things. Because also, like, you know, I heard on the radio someone say, "If if you go and complain to your doctor about mental illness, you know whatever treatment that they have, you might be put on a wait list and you might not get it right away. You have to, you know, there's all kinds of compromises, etc., etc. But if you go to the, to the A&E and say, I tried to kill myself. Oh yeah, you'll get it right away. You'll get it right away. And you'll, you'll get, you know, a, you'll see a psychiatrist that day. Well, it's that thing of proof and performing yeah. and, you know, other people's perception of exactly. you. You know, and there is a lot about that in I, Daniel Blake, and there is a lot about that in The Virgin Suicide. Yeah. There is, you know, she says all, you know, she his horrible, horrible uh, representative from the job centre, you know, prove oh. it, prove it, prove that you've applied for these jobs. And there is also this weird little subplot, which I really liked, yeah. about the boys next door selling counterfeit trainers. Oh, yeah. And, you know, he <laughs> takes them out of the box and he takes the ones out from the shoe shop out of the box and he says, look at these. What's the difference? <laughs> yeah, there is this whole thing, you know, the, the person that is the person that is the happiest and the most successful in the film is the person who has transcended these differences to understand that these are the same trainer. Yeah. That they're not different, actually. That they, you know, these are the same trainer and he can make money selling this one yeah. cheaper. It's, I don't know, what, I don't, I'm quite... That's interesting. I haven't thought that thought through <laughs> enough, but there was something definitely about that. Just considering that whole comparing your own size to someone else's yeah. outside. 
that sort of having to perform, having to be visibly sick, having to be, you know, having to have a, a death to yeah. be unhappy, all of those things, they're all kind of somehow connected and they're yeah. really connected in my brain. And at some point the, I'll think of... I love the way you've, you brought that up, actually. I think you did a really good job, actually, of, of kind of bringing in that line of the film and how it relates to the issue of gaslighting and proof. Mm -hmm. Because on the surface, what he's saying is that these two trainers look the same, they present the same, they are the same. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And and he does very well. He's very entrepreneurial. He's very and, entrepreneurial. He's very happy. And he's, he's happy. very balanced. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is. It's interesting. He's the, also the most sort of financially successful. Yeah. And, um, and he doesn't rely on anyone. Money can't buy you happiness. Is rich and doesn't want you to have it. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you have anything else well, to say that, about no, Daniel Blake? I think we've covered a lot here, and it feels like a a natural place to end. This has been a really interesting discussion for me because you've helped me unpack some things in. Daniel Blake that I hadn't seen before. Same with you and the Virgin Citizens. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and next week we'll be discussing psychosis. psychosis. Yep. Yeah. Okay, cool. Looking forward to it. Me too. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Hi again. Thank you so much for listening to the Projections podcast. We really, really hope you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to all of your friends or rate and review us on iTunes because that way we get more listeners. Yeah, and just spread the word and follow us also on our socials. You can find us on Instagram at Projections Podcast, as well as uh, look up our Facebook page, Projections Podcast. Um, you can also find us on our individual Twitter accounts. Um, mine is uh, at Psychstar, P-S-Y-C-S-T-A-R, and Sarah's is Sarah K. Cleaver. Perfect. Um, yeah, and also feel free to email us too. Uh, we're projectionspod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Any film recommendations you have that could um, sort of work with the categories we've been discussing uh, or just any feedback really, if you have complaints or just anything, we'd love to hear from you. If you have complaints, try and put them in a polite, nice way. Please. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.